welcome to The Jam Packed, an independent podcast inspired by the campaigns led by the WI. My name is Rosa, and in this episode we are talking about ecotherapy with Mary Jane Rust. Mary Jane trained as an art therapist in 1979. She has worked in a men's prison as well as with women with eating problems at the Women's Therapy Centre. She currently works in her private practice in North London. She also has lived experience with an eating disorder, which we talk a little bit about in the second half of the podcast. But what is ecotherapy? How can it help us? And does it have anything to say about climate change? We start the podcast with a little bit about what ecotherapy is not. Ecotherapy is it's not just about nature being healing or nature going out into the pretty bluebells and everything will be fine. We see the whole spectrum of life and death in nature. So we learn about living and dying as we pass through the seasons, for example. We see trees shedding their leaves. We see plants dying. And it might remind us, for example, in the autumn of what we need to shed. It becomes a sort of mirror. And then spring can be an amazing time of renewal where we're reminded, you know, after maybe a rather insular time through winter where we go more into hibernation mode, like animals, then we can begin to unfurl and come out in spring. And we're literally reminded of that when when we go out. I mean, I tell you the story of one of my clients who, and that I have permission to share. I'm, I'm only going to share things which I have permission to share. Yeah, of course. So she was going through a long period of grief after her mother died. And after a long winter um, of feeling really low, we were sitting in the woods uh, in a session and she said to me, there is no new life. And at that moment, actually it must have been in the autumn, I'm saying that we'd survived a long winter, so it must have been in the autumn, an acorn dropped on her lap. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a really good example of how nature speaks to us in the session. And we both just burst out laughing. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) nature could speak more clearly than me in that moment. And and actually, it wasn't my job to reassure my client in her grief. It's really my job just to be there with her. Yeah, I I mean, but one of the things I was thinking of when you were talking was um, uh, my sessions with a clinical psychologist, which I went to see for chronic pain when I was young. And um, that was incredibly clinical which is something nature is not you know you go into the hospital and it 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 frames the whole process and how how you think about it like you are a patient and you are there to be kind of uh, looked at and examined and and have the you know like your you, you write in your number and circle the thing of where it hurts and how much and so on um and there's nothing in that environment that is alive and that can surprise you and there's something about being in nature where you're in nature together and you you're kind of equal subjects in nature whereas in the clinical setting there is a hierarchy that's a really good point and it's quite um what can I say you know when I first I'd been practicing as a therapist for several decades before I started working outdoors And it's quite a shake-up because as a therapist, you get very used to a a sort of little routine of opening the door. Um, You don't 
you don't have polite conversation to start with, you enter the room, you shut the door, you have your chairs that you sit on. Um, and I, I have a particular chair that I like to sit on. Not every therapist does that, but I do. So, it, you know, and then you go out into the forest and you're walking together and maybe your client, I usually invite my clients to pick a spot. So there's a sense of the client being much more in charge in a way. And then maybe we'll both sit with our backs against a tree. So we really are, like you say, you know, there's more of a sense of equality. Um, yeah, and also, also in that description you gave it's not just you and the client it's you the client and the tree you know there's more than the both of you in that session and that I also remember when I went out for my first session with this client this just tremendous feeling of being held and what a relief it was I mean I can actually feel tears coming to my eyes like I was being held by something larger I mean if you've got any sense of the spiritual in the world, you will also have a sense of being held anyway, even if you're practicing in a room. And of course, we're in nature all the time. But there was such a reminder of going into the forest and feeling like, oh, the trees have got my back. Uh, I'm holding my plant, but I'm also being held and we're both being held in the work. How, how much of what you do is talking about being in nature and being outside? It's not a huge amount. I mean, in a way, I was kind of taken aback in a sense. I thought it was going to be completely different. But actually, with this first person that I worked with outside, uh, it was someone I'd been seeing for a long time already. And she asked to work outdoors. So this was a real experiment and <clears throat> hardly anyone else was doing it at the time. And so I, you know, I didn't have a training. I didn't have anyone else to guide me. We were sitting there in many ways. We were having the same dialogue outside as we were having inside. But after a little while, I began to notice the, the beings around us were reflecting what was going on in the session. I could tell you a, a, another story where we were, we were, in fact, both sitting shoulder to shoulder against a tree and this particular person uh, often fell into very uncomfortable silences. Uh, she had such a strong inner critic. She would often feel judged, even, sometimes even just by the intake of my breath. <laughs> there would be an imagination that I was bored or, you know, whatever. And sometimes she would get caught in these states for long periods of time uh, outdoors we had the rustle of the trees and the sound of the squirrels. So it was, the silence was softened and it was no longer silence in a sense. I actually commented to her, I, I, would, I wouldn't just leave her totally in silence. I would say something and then wait for a response. And then we would fall back into silence again. Then, but I felt that I was chasing her a bit. And then I noticed that there were two squirrels chasing around the tree <laughs> opposite. And so I, I smiled and I said, do you, maybe you feel a bit chased by me. And uh, she, she smiled because she knew what I meant. And we fell into silence again. And then for whatever reason, we both looked down at the same time and we saw a tiny spider had built a web between our shoulders. Wow. And it was an incredibly moving moment because 
somehow the disconnection in the silence and, the, and my attempts at connection, which really hadn't come to much, was then a bridge had been made by this tiny creature. And we didn't really say anything about it because we just both kind of knew this was an amazing affirmation. You know, she'd invited me to go and work outdoors and, uh, and I had been wanting to. And somehow this, we were on a journey together. And then she said, how are we going to get up now? <laughs> and we were almost at the end of the session and we, and we waited for a few moments. And then we looked down and everything was gone right on, on the time of the end of the session. The spider was gone. The web was gone. It was astounding, an astounding moment. That taught me a lot about how actually it, how important it was to notice. And it's quite difficult, you know, as a therapist, I'm always busy noticing what's going on inside me and with the person I'm with. Um, and obviously listening intently to what they're saying. So then there's another whole raft of things <laughs> to notice um, mm. that is going on around us. Did you ever feel pressure to notice something amazing, like while you're talking to someone? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I think if you're talking and you're thinking, hmm, it would be really great if there's an eagle just landing right now. <laughs> this, this would really help the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> but actually, I think if you go looking for those amazing moments, they tend to be pretty elusive. In the talking that I do with my client generally at the start of introducing them to ecotherapy, I encourage the clients to do the noticing as well. And they often will bring things to my attention um, as well as me maybe commenting on things. And there are too many things to, you know, you'd be commenting right throughout the session <laughs> if, you'd, if you drew attention to everything that was going on. But it, I think it's sort of obvious in a way to, to both me and the client when something's worth pointing out I, and sometimes we get stopped in our tracks there was someone else I was working with and a fox appeared and just stood and looked at both of us I mean it was such a magical moment and for whatever reason my client really she really needed that at that particular moment and there was something very important to her about the character of the fox that's the kind of paradox of therapy isn't it because you need to Look in yourself and look out of yourself. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. In one of the links you sent me, it said, um, like one of the definitions of ecotherapy was uh, psychology in service of the earth. And I've yeah. wondered what, what your take was on that and what service you thought um, it was providing. It's a very good question. Um, I think it can be of service on many levels. Um, and I'm really glad you brought that up because I think there are lots of ways in which ecotherapy is being practiced, which in a sense comes from, I mean, with no ill intention, but it, it, there's a sort of, my worry is that it's just within the mindset of our, of our consumer culture. So we go out into nature to get healed, mm. just to take and it's terribly important to me and many of my colleagues that, that ecotherapy is thought of as a, as a reciprocal therapy. And I suppose, you know, you might think, well, we just, we're going, I'm going with my clients into the forest. What, what's, what's giving to nature about that? <laughs> uh, the first thing I do with my client is we, we create a threshold 
at, at the edge of the forest. And I invite them with me to ask permission of the forest to enter for the work that we're doing. I say, it's a community of beings that we're walking into. They're not just objects, they're living creatures. And the whole forest is a living ecosystem. My clients love this. You know, I haven't come across one person who's thought I'm completely woo-woo for suggesting it, but it, it actually then introduces the idea that this is not, they're not just resources for our use. We are entering into a relationship. And I, and I think if, I think that's a huge thing for people to really get. You know, if we all really got that, that would be a big start, wouldn't it, in, in changing our Western mindset. And it is putting that person's story into the, the story of the relationship of nature as opposed to, you know, the, the clinical setting I was in. It barely felt like a story. It felt like a medical process that it was put into, whereas you're, you're almost in, in a communion in a way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that in a sense, that experience of the spider and the web and many of these things where a robin comes and serenades us in the middle of the session or when the fox appears, these are numinous experiences, what Jung would call, uh, C.G. Jung, famous Swiss uh, psychologist would call numinous. So we have an experience of, I don't know, the kind of uh, some language words can be very off-putting to people, but I would describe it as a sort of divine experience or an experience of the sacred in nature. Yeah, so, it's, it's definitely transcendent. It takes you out of yourself. Yeah, yeah, and 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 takes you into a. It's a sort of portal into ha. Ah, so it's we're not just sort of consumers in this. Um, transactional world full of objects where there's no meaning beyond matter mm. actually there's a whole world going on out there there's a whole community of beings which we're part of and that can have really a profound effect on people but I mean in a more mundane way also ecotherapy helps us to just learn about nature you know because we're sitting and we're observing and Many people don't do that. Even when we go out for walks, we don't, you know, we tend to be engaged in chats with our friends <laughs> rather than sitting and watching a butterfly for an hour or something, you know, where we really learn about the, the lifestyles of, of others whom we're sharing the planet with. And sometimes um, I might ask some people, you know, we might do a bit of litter picking or something. It depends on the person I'm working with. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to impose that on a client. Um, but some people might feel moved to give back in that way. Yeah, the, the whole idea of um, relationships. Like when I first messaged you, I was thinking about um, the environment and mental health, but I was mostly thinking about loneliness yeah. and um, nature is all about synergy and relationships uh, but also many of us feel as though we don't have any relationship with nature or sort of see being connected with nature as a personal thing rather than an in intrinsic thing that you have just by existing so if you breathe or drink or eat but you're 
part of something bigger than yourself just by existing and it's that kind of when you feel like a consumer you you don't feel that relationship you you feel you know you're in this transactional role and I think that can be quite lonely absolutely it's one of the one of the things that the, the sort of western mindset is one of the big things I think that contributes to a sense of loneliness and I've experienced that in in my life I had a period of time during my 30s when I really got very lonely sort of in between for many years in between two very long relationships when I look back on it now you know I was living on my own in a flat in London I'd somehow lost some of the connections with ideas and belief systems that I'd had earlier in my life. And I fell into this place of feeling very disconnected and, and most of all, not really having uh, my beloved connection with, I mean, I grew up in North Norfolk um, with a deep connection to the sea and walking on the cliffs and um, walking across the fields. So I, I really sort of fell into a hole, I think, of feeling disconnected. And it was actually coming back through my work, through my immersion in eco-psychology, which I discovered, that really helped me to feel much less lonely in myself. I kind of revisited a lot of the belief systems of Western culture, you know, that we're apparently separate. We're all separate from each other. And apparently humans are superior to the rest of life. Those are two really important beliefs systems of the traditional Western mindset. Where um, do you think that comes from? It's a very long story, but I, <laughs> I, I think, and I think it's very hard to try and summarize it really, because I think it's so complicated how, how that's happened. But I think there's, if I were to try and summarize it, I think that, um, that very gradually, I mean, I think it goes right back to the beginnings of agriculture, for example, and the, and the gradual withdrawal from being hunter-gatherers and living as nomads and being, obviously then if you're a nomadic culture, you would be so connected to the seasons because you'd be moving around according to the season. Uh, you would have a deep knowledge of all the plants and animals around you. You would have to know when you hunt animals, you would have to know their habits. And then probably you retell, well, we learn this from traditional cultures now, you know, they retell their day and turn them into stories in the evenings around the fire. So you're, you're completely immersed in the other than human world. And then gradually agriculture um, was the beginnings beginning to control the environment um, and grow food. And, and uh, some people suggest that actually uh, there was a, a time when great regions in the Middle East became very, uh, through weather changes, became, um, there was a lot of desertification that happened. Also, you know, great plagues as well. And you can understand how then humans would become more and more fearful of nature and want to be in control. I mean, it's, it's really understandable. And so then you just get this gradual progression into a place of thinking that we're better than the other. 
that's that's what happens when you're in a controlling and domineering relationship <laughs> and we forget actually and we're being taught by climate change and the ecological crisis that we can't actually dominate nature nature will rise up <laughs> and teach us this very uh, difficult lesson that we actually have to work with with nature and not against nature but i, I think it's understandable that we've that we've somehow thought of ourselves as heroes conquering the great wild and how successful we've been at, mm. at that um, and we treat other people like that don't we when we um uh, put like the the other down like in other cultures we often compare them to animals or you know we try and conquer and take over them and um show them as more ignorant than than we are so the whole history of colonization is about peoples and the other than human world. We often don't include the other than human world in that history of colonization, but all of those are parallels, aren't they? So what we see at the end of that is, is white Western values at the top, and then a hierarchy of humans, often with indigenous peoples who are closest to nature at the bottom. But obviously, you know, men put women down as being closer to nature, white people put people of colour down as being closer to nature. It's very interesting to see all of those parallels and, and that racism and sexism and all of the isms go hand in hand with uh, what we call anthropocentrism, which is a complicated and rather um, uh, difficult word to understand, but it, it's, a, it's a parallel to the racism and sexism that we're, that we're seeing ourselves as, as, as better than the other. So do you think that um, to tackle racism and sexism, we have to um, look at our beliefs about the natural world or even to tackle climate change, we need to look at racism and sexism? Oh, I think that one is very interesting because I think tackling climate change has, has been a very white middle class issue concern, um, even though it's of course it's affected um, many people of color around the world first, before wealthy whites, but I think people thankfully are now realizing that actually if you just build a white movement, this is never going to work. You know, we, have to work we have to work together. We have to build bridges across these movements and you can't, you can't make a successful environmental movement if there's racism going on in your groups of people. And we see that still carrying on. Uh, and the same, you know, the sexism, I think, is people have got a lot more aware of that. And I think with the uh, George Floyd murder and Black Lives Matter, that's become a, that has come a lot more into people's awareness. And I think things are changing very quickly. And of course, the Me Too movement has been another round of the, of the sexism issue. So it's really great to see. Uh, I mean, it's awful to see how it's still in evidence, but it's great to see that people are becoming more aware of, of these things. Yeah, it, it seems to keep going back to um, connection. I mean, like, I, I always hate to say connection to nature because that almost implies you're not, not yeah. really, but you could be, but you're not really. <laughs> but what do you think about that phrase, connect, connected to nature? I, I don't, I don't like it very much. It's clunky, but it's, it's sort of a bit like the word, I'm not that fond of the word ecotherapy, to be honest, or, or you know, the way eco is tacked onto everything, as if we can all go out and get reconnected to nature, implies that, that we weren't. 
I mean, we're not in some ways, but of course, hold your breath for five minutes and everyone will know that, that they are, <laughs> that we're all breathing, that we're, of course, we're all connected, but, there's, but in many ways, we're not. We've, we've lost touch with, I think that's probably a better, mm. a better phrase, and we feel that we're living on top of the land rather than inside something. Yes, and when people talk about um, going out into nature, I always think about how you wouldn't apply that to something like a bird, for example, if it leaves its nest, then it's going out into nature. Like we see our, our homes um, as, a, as almost like an unnatural thing, like there's inside where our homes are and then outside where nature is. So we don't see what we, what we do, like the buildings of homes as, you know, a house is how... Um, our species of ape has constructed its habitat. Yes, exactly. And it's all, it's all nature. Everything is natural. And I mean, what, and what we tend to say, think of as, we, we think of natural as being in a, opposition to man-made. But actually, when you think that we're part of nature, then everything is natural to that extent. And, and it, I do have, I mean, I love the word nature because its source is natus to be meaning to be born so it's about the place in which we're born I mean I think that's a, a lovely meaning of it but like as you rightly point out you know to talk about going out into nature just emphasizes that dualism that we're trying to get away from in the eco-psychology world, we try and replace it with words like, instead of saying nature, we talk about the other than human world or the more than human world, but it's very clunky. And I think it puts some people off because it sounds a bit pretentious, but. <laughs> yeah, we need new words, we do uh, need like new more words. simple words we that, do. that we, we do. can use. I often yeah. just talk about the rest of nature to make a point. Like non-human animals to talk to emphasize we are animals ourselves exactly so a lot a lot of this and I guess a lot of therapy in a way is about discovering a new self or or the self and ecotherapy is about discovering the self in the context of nature and putting our individual life story and our inner world in like the the grand story of the natural world how do you think um or, or could you talk about how ecotherapy gives us this kind of long perspective of, of cyclical time and what role that has in the therapeutic process and your, your understanding of the self? Because one of the things when we think about nature is we're, we're thinking about such profound scopes of time that you can't imagine. And when you go to therapy, it's often because you're having a time in your life where you, you need that extra support. So connecting uh, that time with the time of your life and then how, how brief that is in the context of the time of nature and mm. um, that must do something to how you see your problems yes I think it puts things in proportion when you really get a sense of that we are tiny specks in a very large universe a universe so unbelievably large that it's impossible for us to conceive of how large it is actually that realization can be quite overwhelming but it, it can also be i think this goes back to um what you raised earlier about really understanding the notion of interconnectedness and knowing that we are part of 
we are inside a, a, a living, conscious web of life. That always amazes me to really think like that. And uh, it, it relieves that sense of loneliness. But I, I, I think to your question, you know, how does this work? It's quite difficult to answer because it's so different for each client. They will have different insights. One of my clients came to see me because of my ecotherapy experience. Uh, but actually then she discovered that she doesn't, wasn't really talking about her eco grief very much. I mean, she, she was fully aware of what was going on with the world and she did have a lot of feelings about it, but she found actually she really wanted to talk about her mother. So we, the, you know, in a sense, then we had a couple of years of fairly traditional psychotherapy going on when she was grieving the loss of her mother as her mother was going into de dementia. And also it brought up all the difficult relationship that she'd had with her mother throughout childhood. But it was interesting to me that actually then uh, several things happened. Oh, one was that uh, we were actually indoors. Uh, she's not someone I've worked outdoors with, even though there's been a lot about nature in the therapy. And a queen hornet flew into the room and was crawling around the chair. So I was slightly alarmed because it was so big. I'd never seen a queen hornet before. And so I, I actually happened to have a glass next door to me, which was good without water in it. I, so I got a piece of paper and I just, um, the, the hornet was not very active. So it was quite easy to put, to just gently put the glass over it. And we left it like that for the rest of the session. But it was very meaningful to her because her mother uh, had been quite a stinging mother. So, and she had also had an experience with me where I'd made a remark in the, in the previous session, which she had found quite stinging. That's usually what happens in therapy is that the relationships that you found difficult in your life often start to get repeated in the therapeutic relationship. It's what we call the transference. And that, that can be very helpful because then you're working with it in real time. So she was stuck experiencing me as the cruel mother. Uh, this was very helpful, her working through something with her actual mother. Then what happened was that she went home after a, another session and a duck had flown into a window in her house. She found this dead duck still warm on the terrace. And she was absolutely in floods of tears. Suddenly, all her grief about the earth came pouring out. She sent me a text to say what had happened. And then when she came back, you know, this was then the start of really going in deep into her grief for the earth. But she brought the grief for her mother and the grief for the earth together. But she had to do the piece about her mother first. So do a lot of people come to you to talk about their anxiety about climate change and the yeah. environment? They do, but not necessarily the only thing. You know, most people will be like my client. There'll be maybe a range of things that they want to talk about. And they come to me because they want a therapist who believes, you know, who is not going to start interpreting their grief for the earth as a displacement for another grief, a human grief. 
I would take it seriously. And if that person wants to spend a lot of time on their eco grief, then that's what we will do. And I will listen to it and help them unpack it and also understand the connections with their human relationships. So it's not seeing it in isolation, just as with the example I've just given. And other people might do it the other way around. You know, before they can talk about their parents, they might need to grieve for the earth. So it, it's, that's, that's just one small example around grief. Uh, there are many other ways in which um, coming to realize our place in the earth and in the universe can have a profound effect on people's everyday problems. But, you know, that's not to make their everyday problems small. It just helps get some perspective. And that, that grief is like the price that you pay for realizing, you know, this 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 valuable, you know, try not to use the word connection again, but that <laughs> the value of relationship that we're all in, you know, the, the price that we pay is that pain of what is happening. Yeah. That's a really interesting comment. Um, you mean as we wake up, we realize what is happening. We will, but you see, it's interesting what uh, I have noticed that, you know, a lot of the kind of climate change communication is through kind of alarm, not all of it by any means, but, you know, wake up, look at all the terrible things that are happening, wake up, wake up. My experience is that actually people need to be grounded first. They need, and they need to sort of come into their wondrous relationship with nature and how much they love it. And then often then the grief emerges. Well, it's a bit like the therapy relationship itself. You need to establish an alliance before you, that builds a container then for the really difficult stuff to happen. I, I was involved in a um, community craft project. Well, I, I was the one organizing it and it, we made these green hearts and we made about, 80 of them and we cut them out and sewed them and embroidered them they were all like unique and different and we hung them up in um, a cafe window and it it was um, just so lovely to see them like these these green hearts and it was all about um, Valentine's Day and showing um, what you love about the environment um, and this coming together through craft and appreciation that just reframed how I've seen it since um, climate change and focusing on um, the appreciation and relationship. And that, that I think is part of the, the loneliness as well. If you think you are just the one person facing the disaster of the world, there's not much you can do about it. But if you are creating communities of appreciation and you are focusing on what you can do, that is, that is a whole different way to interact with the problem. Exactly. Um, there's a famous quote by uh, someone who was an environmentalist a long time ago. I think it was Aldo Leopold, who said something like uh, the price of uh, the awareness of ecological crisis is living alone in a world of wound, in, a, in, a, in a world of wounds, which is your, what you said reminded me a little bit of that quote. And I think some people do get caught in that. And particularly I notice ecologists and scientists are the ones who are really, they're really kind of um, at the coalface of seeing all the terrible changes that are happening. And I've 
seen, I'm a member of um, various um, climate psychology email lists and there are people who write in and say, you know, I've just been struggling on my own with this for, for a very long time and I can't even go out for a walk in nature because I see all the terrible things that other people don't see. But as you rightly point out, as soon as we come into community and we share our grief and our rage and our despair and all sorts of things with others who are similarly having um, those experiences, it all changes. I must mention actually the work of a woman called Joanna Macy, who's one of the first people to run workshops for actually originally for client, for um, environmental activists of which he was one. What she noticed was that many of those activists always felt that they had to be positive and be positive about the future. And that that was a heavy price to pay because that often leads to burnout when you, you feel you can't really express your despair, but it was seen as letting the side down. So um, she was quite psychologically minded and she designed these exercises together with an environmental, uh, uh, environmental activist called John Seed, Australian rainforest activist. And they together used to run these workshops where, for example, you would gather together in a circle and it would be held in a ritualistic way. Um, this one was called the Truth Mandala. And you would divide the space in the middle of the group into four. And you would have, say, a pile of dead leaves for um, loss, a stone for despair, a stick for rage, and I think there was one other thing. And in the center was, I just don't know how I feel. And each person took it in turns to come into the center and just express how they felt. You weren't allowed to say anything positive. You just stayed with all the difficult feelings. And by the end, I mean, it was so powerful. I can't tell you. By the end, everyone was crying and hugging and just, you know, it's an amazing way to bring a group together. And also the trust, this is a very therapeutic idea, that you trust the process. A lot of people are scared of going into those, what are termed negative feelings. I don't like that term. I think all feelings have a place. So if we stay with the despair and we share it with others or the grief or whatever it is, eventually things all you know, it's like a wave that will have its time and it will ride itself out. And then you uh, come into another place. And so her, her work was also called um, despair work, um, and in, uh, which would empower you for action. So she would find that actually um, activists would be really empowered by expressing their feelings and bonding in this way with other people. Her work was called The Work That Reconnects, and there are still many, many groups around the world who are practicing this. That's, that's really interesting, because um, if we are fearful about climate change, I think that fear can be so easily manipulated um, by corporations and, um, you know, governments and, and so on. You know, they, they, they will do something that will seemingly relieve that fear, but actually doesn't so for example at the moment um the there is the outrage about um the discovery 
um, that our recycling is being sent to Turkey to be burnt. I mean, that just seems so pointless. So it was yeah. quite a short-term relief of the British public sphere. The environment includes, you know, our socially constructed environment. You know, it's not it's not just um, you know trees, the ocean, and and so if that, but the the human environment is also profoundly affected by government, economics, uh, education. So do, does ecotherapy have much to say about those things? Well, it's a it's a very interesting point, and there's lots of divided opinions about this of whether you can do ecotherapy in in all sorts of different environments. Because traditionally, you know, if you're going to go out into nature, <laughs> um, then people would choose beautiful places. They, they wouldn't go and choose, um, I don't know, a waste tip <laughs> to do their ecotherapy. And I have a close friend and colleague who I've run many outdoor courses with, and he ran a very successful project in Scotland called the Natural, the Natural Change Project. And uh, it was under the auspices of WWF. I mean, it was a fantastic experiment for them to fund. So they invited community leaders who weren't necessarily green at all to do a six month course where they would use some of the sort of ecotherapy methods of spending time out in nature where they would do maybe one of those events would be a one a one week immersion in a wild place and then spending 24 hours in in one spot in nature and that can be a very powerful exercise but they also further down the line invited people to find what we would traditionally call sit spots sit spots usually in nature they would invite people to do find sit spots in Piccadilly Circus or wherever their local um, busy urban place was and just to notice the different differences in how they felt in their body and their psyche in, in all of those different environments. Um, were perhaps, you know, I've been, for example, a long time ago now, but I, I visited a friend in Santa Fe in New Mexico and it's the most amazing city because it's all built out of red earth and all the buildings are, are soft and with round corners and you know that's the traditional way in which they've always built them but they've gone on to develop a more urban environment but still out of this red clay and I walked around I thought wow this is the kind of urban environment that I could be you know I, I wouldn't feel out of place here I'd feel that Somehow it's, and of, and of course, all our bricks are made out of clay, you know, London bricks, etc. But somehow it was easier to see with, the, with these buildings that had. So I think our man-made environment has a huge impact on us, not just the buildings, but how buildings are organised. You know, architects will tell you that. Um, some very interesting work, for example, by a woman called Claire Cooper Marcus in the States who was on a mission to try and persuade all hospitals to have natural spaces built within them so that patients could at least have a view of green or walk out into a courtyard beautifully done or even better, you know, more access to nature and prove beyond a measure of doubt that 
their healing times were faster and didn't have to spend so much time in hospital. So all of that would save uh, medical services a lot of money if they built hospitals like that. Sad thing is, of course, we're going in the opposite direction with windows that don't open, <laughs> etc. <cetera. laughs> or no windows at or all. Or no windows, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the amount of hospitals I've been in where it's just you go into the labyrinth, like yeah. through corridors and corridors, and yeah. like, I always think, like, what happens to the staff, like in the, you know, you get into, like, the, the centre center realms of the hospital and there's like not a window to be seen anywhere and so she was a landscape architect so there's a whole bunch of landscape architects that are really interested in this sort of how you create urban environments that don't feel quite so tight and concrete how you green the cities I mean that it's a really really big issue isn't it and it's not about everyone escaping to the country it's also about greening the cities lot of really interesting projects going on and really you have to keep people in cities to help the environment but you have to make those cities greener yeah yeah and there are lots of ways of doing that aren't there how how would uh, an ecotherapist advise i um i swim as often as i can um in somewhere called the women's pond in north london it's on Hampstead heath and it's a, a pond fed by a natural spring. Amazingly, you know, half an hour from the central London, you can actually drink the water that's coming out of the ground. It is regularly <laughs> tested, and so it's safe to drink. And you can there's a there's a little sort of stone fountain at the head of the spring, and then the first pond is for other than human beings only. The next pond is for women. The next pond is for other than human beings. The next one is for men. And then uh, there's also a mixed pond and various other ponds that humans aren't allowed in. Um, so I have found this to be the most extraordinary space uh, for healing. I go at the end of a string of clients, um, usually at the end of the morning, and it just feels like it, like it just heals me if the stuff that's gone into my body from the morning and from listening that immersion in the water will just clear everything away it's a wonderful kind of cleansing process uh, but it's also important to me it's not just about seeing more hens and geese with babies at this time of year but it's also about the other human community so i find it's full of eccentric women who uh particularly moving I find that women because it's a women only space they feel safe enough to be naked when maybe they don't have their breasts anymore or um, they've got parts of their body that they would normally cover up so it's a very very safe sanctuary so if I were in charge I would have a lot of those wild swimming spaces around London I would have, I mean, London's known as a very green city, uh, but areas of it aren't. And I would really love to put a lot of money into the poorer areas so that they can have access to not only beautiful places to go and sit, but also places to go and swim, to walk, to cycle. A lot is being done around cycle paths in London because I, I don't have a car, so I rely on my bike to get around on public transport. 
I really like what's being done with, with cycling. And of course, all of that feeds back into servicing our psyche, if you like. It's like it, it sort of keeps things fresh and moving. I find when I've gone for a long bike ride, I will have been thinking in a different way with the rhythmic motion of pedaling and letting my mind just run free and often just going, becoming empty. So it's like a meditation, um, and I find that's terribly important to have. I noticed that a lot of the UK therapists that I, I was looking at on the, in the directory, they, they also um, did a lot of body work, and there's a lot of dance yeah. therapists or ex-dancers. Yeah. And so this getting into your body and using your body really seems to be uh, an important thing. It is an important thing. I think you can't really form a relationship with nature very easily if you're not embodied. Uh, one of the most hopeful things that is happening at the moment is uh, the rewilding movement and regenerative agriculture. People are getting very excited about how quickly uh, it's possible, given the right conditions, how lots of species are returning to those places and particularly well known as the Nep estate just south of London. I mean, it's very close to London, but it's a I think it's a 2000 acre estate, something like that. So it's a big experiment. And uh, they brought in lots of different species of large animals to churn up the earth in particular ways. And that, that um, rejuvenates the land um, in all sorts of ways. And then species are returning. So then the question is, how do we rewild ourselves? And I think the question you asked previously about, you know, well, what would you do in an urban environment as an ecotherapist? I would try and create conditions where we are more likely to, to be in touch with our bodies. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone I swim with at the pond, all those women, they're very embodied. Yes, you would create um, a city very differently if you started with the idea that human beings are animals and you're creating an environment for these animals to thrive in exactly but you'd have to think what do these animals need exactly and and i think one of the ways that one of the things that often blocks us you know it's part of the western mindset isn't it that we're apart from the animals we don't like thinking of ourselves as animals often I, I do because uh, I've done a lot of thinking about it and I guess I grew up in Norfolk, I grew up in a, a farming community, my father was a miller so and we had dogs and so perhaps it's a bit easier for me than other people but I think there's a sort of it's got bad press the the human animal, we tend to think of our animal selves as the part of ourselves that's aggressive and uh, wild and untamed greedy exactly we have it's so amazing how all of this is embedded in our language or you greedy pig or you lazy cow or you fat pig um and it's know. very ironic because we're the consumerist species yes coming to know ourselves as animals and that the animal self is an ally is really turning around that belief system I mean, just to give you an example from my own life, I, I suffered from an eating problem um, in my teens and my 20s. And I went up and down in weight, you know, binging and starving and 
going on these diets and then breaking the diet. And, and it was three stone up, three stone down. It was quite a struggle. Then I discovered a book called Fat is a Feminist Issue. And I began to realize that actually it wasn't just me as an individual who was greedy. Actually, there was something about the culture that I was living in that um, enabled lots of women to feel bad about their bodies and then and to feel bad about their appetites. That, that so, was Susie Orbach. I've, I haven't read that book, but I've read her other book called Bodies. Exactly. And exactly. That, that one was a stay up all night reading it book. I, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, she's a real, you know, she was one of the founders of feminist psychotherapy. And that's that was the beginnings of that was in the very early days of my therapy life, my, ther my, my therapy career, if you like. I really did. I really was set against my body. I hated my body. I hated the fact that I would have these urges to eat. But getting better, recovering from my eating problem was going, you know, sort of removing this line of, around my neck and actually dropping down into my stomach. You know, had I ever thought about whether I was hungry or not, whether I ate? So I began to be able to distinguish between physical hunger, stomach hunger, mouth hunger, emotional hunger, um, all these different hungers. And then, <clears throat> and of course, you know, and, and I was in therapy for years, and of course it's a, a lifelong task in a way, exploring our emotional hungers. It, it goes on and on. But the fact that I was able to know now when my body is hungry and give myself permission then to eat what I like, and as long as I stop when I'm full. And then if I know that I'm not really hungry, well, then I need to just sort of gently take myself away and um, look at what I need. So in all of what I'm saying all of that, because that was really getting, that was the first piece of my journey in getting to know my body and realizing that my, that my stomach was, was an ally. <laughs> it would tell me when I was hungry and tell me when to stop. <laughs> Of course, it's not always that easy, but when you really work on your emotional hunger, which is also part of the body, then it, it did get much easier. And so it's not just about hungers and emotions. It's also about instincts and intuitions. In fact, really, most of our lives are about living as our animal selves. And it's only our kind of rational intellectual self that's, that's the separate bit that's rather different, I think, from the animal self. So I would say that, you know, most of our time we are actually living as animals, even though we don't quite realise it. When you described, um, you know, sitting around the um, the area where you swim and the, the women, um, you know, being in different states of undress, it, was, it made me think, you know, it's a place where you could go and be bodies, but also a place where you can go and drop your guard. And it's that dropping your guard that really makes for deep relationships. So if you have a natural space and you can drop your guard, um, that's something you can then really go into. Whereas other spaces where you're on edge or you're in a rush, um, you can't you can't build that same relationship. You can't go and just just be a body with other bodies. This is really profound. What you're bringing up. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, it really is because this whole notion of trust 
has been so eroded, particularly in the cities, but I don't think it's just in the cities. When I, I mean, it's all very well for me to say when I was growing up, but you know, when I was growing up, you used to, we never locked the house. We used to drive into the local market town, park the car, leave the keys in the car. We didn't, nobody thought, you know, no one had a second thought about it. It's really changed. And if you go to traditional cultures, it's like that. It's unbelievable to imagine what a difference it makes not to have that guard up all the time. Mm -hmm. And we forget about it, don't we? It's a natural thing to put up our guard. When I go on the tube in London, my guard is up. Of course, I would be naive to, to, to be otherwise. I have to have my guard up. Um, and that trust, if you apply it to climate change, like can we trust um, you know, these industries that we're buying from? Can we trust our government to manage our waste properly? Um, we want to be making the right decisions, but can we make um, you know, good decisions based on the information we're given? Can we trust that information and so on? It, it makes you feel very alienated if you don't have that trust. And most people, an awful lot of people do feel alienated, don't they? And don't feel that they can trust, that there's any government that they can vote in that they will trust. A lot of people feel, you know, don't vote because they just feel, what's the use? It's just another government who we can't trust and it's just more lies. To just give up doesn't isn't right. <laughs> it's very tempting because <laughs> it's kind of easier, but it doesn't sit right with the soul, does it? It doesn't for me anyway, just to sort of give up. But we have to find places where we can feel we can make a difference. And I find that being part of communities who really care about the earth are generally places are very trusting, trustworthy people. I mean, not always, you know, I don't want to idealize those communities, but generally speaking, um, I find they're good, healthy communities to be part of. And it's so essential at the moment when we see that we most likely have more unsettled times ahead. I don't think things are going to be magically cured just yet. Uh, one of the most important things is that we build communities and we build our relationship with the land. I would say those two things, human relationships and relationships with the land, so that we can be more resilient. So what do you think people can do to stay wild? Well, I, um, we've been talking about um, one very important piece, which is getting to know your bodies. It's a good place to start getting to know your instincts, not dismissing your instincts and intuition, I think particularly for women. Uh, but of course, it's not easy because which voices do we trust inside? I think a lot of the work of therapy, in my opinion, and, and from in my own personal experience, has been getting to all of those voices are welcome at the table and they need to work together, including the rational voice. And, and if we can actually give them an equal place at the table, then there's a chance for real wisdom to emerge. So I would say that's one very important piece for rewilding ourselves. And I think that's really supported by spending time in nature, 
that, that, that those aspects of ourselves can somehow be enhanced and, and um, supported to emerge. But also, I think once we are more embodied and we go and develop a practice of spending time outdoors, we can get to know nature through our bodies because we get to know nature through our senses, for example, and through our instinctive selves. I found a practice of going and sitting in the same spot every day terribly helpful or going to visit the same tree every day over the course of a month. I always go outside every single day. I don't feel, I, I, one of the things I learned when I was recovering from my eating problem was, um, well, my horse self appeared or my doggy self. You know, I would open the door in the morning and I, I could feel my horse self going, nay, I need <laughs> to get out. <laughs> and I can always feel when I arrive uh, uh, in a green space and I smell the grass. That's when I'm like a dog and I want to roll on the grass and, you know, actually spending time in the forest or in the fields brings out our animal selves. The more you go and just sit quietly in a space, space that, you know, you're drawn to, you will notice different things happening on different days and through different seasons. So one example happened for me, which I found very moving. Um, back in January, I have a particular um, bench that I go and sit on on the heath where um, it's facing south and its back is against the wall. And even the sun's rays in January uh, are warm, they have a little bit of warmth in. And I was about to have my tooth out the next day. And I was quite anxious, um, partly because my dentist had referred me to go and see someone else to have it taken out. So it was a, a male dentist that I didn't know and I, I didn't quite know how this was going to go. Anyway, I went and sat on my bench and, um, and then this robin came and started jumping around my feet. That's, that's amazing, coming very close. And often, robin, often robins do come very close to humans um, and then it jumped onto the bench beside me <laughs> and then it went off and it went foraging and then it came back again and jumped on the bench beside me again and so I just stayed very still and watching it and it kept going round and coming back and then it jumped on my knee <laughs> and then on my other knee <laughs> and so this went on and it was just so soothing so I went home and of course I felt much less anxious um, about having my tooth out. I, that experience really stayed with me and of course I then I rushed back to the bench the next day to have the same experience. <laughs> the robins never come back. <laughs> it was like your own little personal tooth fairy. Yes it was, it was just so beautiful. There's a very well-known animal communicator called Anna Breitenbach. She talks about how to go out into nature and um, the first step is greeting the other than human world, how important that is. But the most important thing is that we drop out of our minds. And that is when we're caught and preoccupied in concerns of the day or the list of things I've got to do when I get home or being in an argument in one's head, which is quite common, it actually, turns the other than human world away 
Whereas when we actually let our minds go empty and just sit still and wait, rather than walking around silently pretending not to be noticed, which she says is becoming like prey and they'll disappear in an instant. <laughs> if you're walking slowly and you're pretending not to be heard, <laughs> they'll think you're after them. But if you just go and sit and wait, then um, the animals will come, the creatures will come. That's an amazing experience. So I think that's another part of getting wilder. Not that we want to, you know, tame or start stroking uh, wild animals. I don't think, you know, we need to know where our boundaries are. But if they feel safe enough to come and jump onto my knee, I'm not going to object. <laughs> There's something quite profound in what you said about recognising your own hunger and how people wouldn't necessarily think of that as an aspect of getting in in touch with the natural world but just that simple act of noticing when you're hungry when you're sleepy that is a relationship with nature absolutely it is yeah and I often noticed when I was learning and listening to my body I noticed that I would often eat when I was tired yeah yeah but I, I've noticed that with myself as well. Like if I start craving sugar in the evening, yeah. it's time to go to bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's amazing. How, and, and the more you notice, the more complex and detailed the inner world is and the, and the emotional world. So and it's been so good to talk to you. And I really hope that um, we can talk again because this is such, this subject, it can go in so many different directions. There's one more thing. Okay, go on. I don't think I've mentioned, which I think is really important in terms of the world of ecotherapy, but I don't think I mentioned already a project called the Natural, I talked about the Natural Change Project. This is the Natural Growth Project, where um, a woman called Jenny Groot started working for something called the Medical Foundation for the Care of Victims of Torture. And she was from Chile. So she had the idea because she hadn't grown up in this culture and she was used to growing food and feasting and harvesting it and feasting it with her, feasting on it with her family. She had the idea of getting a whole load of allotments in North London and working with her clients on the allotments. Often people who've been tortured have been tortured by another human in a room. So going to see a human therapist in a room is often not the best way to start. So she found that actually it was really helpful for them to start by building a relationship with the land. You know, these people have come, they've had such traumatizing experiences. And so they need to start by, and they've had a very strong attachment usually to place and the land where they've come from. So naturally, maybe their first port of call is to make a connection to this land with the, with the help of a therapist. And she used to say that uh, each client would have a, their own individual plot where they would grow their vegetables and then she would come and they would have an hour session, therapy session, and use the metaphors of growing um, and living and dying as uh, metaphors within the therapy work. And she always said to me that she could see the state of each person's psyche by walking past each plot at the end of the day and what sort of state it was in. 
Um, she wrote a book with someone called Sonia Linden, where she's collected together a lot of the stories from people from that project, which is terribly moving. It's called Healing Fields by Jenny Groot and Sonia Linden. And the amazing thing about this project and many projects that have now grown up like it is that it not only connects the individual to the land and um, to themselves through the process of connecting to the therapist, but it also connects people of color together. So bridges between different cultures can be built and then they harvest the food and they feast, you know, they have um, great feasts on the land together. So it's, it's reminding them of where they came from. Uh, and of course it teaches people how to grow food. So it's a, it's a win-win project. That's absolutely fascinating. Uh, it, and it reminds me that on a much lower level because um, because of my um, physical conditions and I'm, I'm autistic as well. I've known a lot of people who have um, lower level trauma from being in clinical settings. So, you know, just turning up at, in, in the car park can just trigger the stress and you can't you can't think and you can't explain um, properly uh, to to the doctor or the therapist and um, so I can I can fully imagine you know uh, going outside as opposed to a room where you're confined and you can't get out and you have such terrible terrible experiences in other rooms like that Exactly. And I've worked with women who've been sexually abused. I mean, that usually takes place on beds in rooms. And, you know, if you walk into a therapy room and there's a couch, it can be really triggering. For many and it's that embodied thing as well, that you're pushing your body, even if your mind knows it's a different situation, you're putting your body into a similar situation. Yeah. So I thought that was um, it was a good project as well for your questions about building community and social justice and and the racism and the, you know so on. These that is a great example of something that uh, binds these issues together. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I'm, I'm going to try and contact them. <laughs> <laughs> They're now called I think um, Freedom from Torture, but I think the Natural Growth Project is still continuing. Although sadly, Jenny died. Um, at least 10 or 15 years ago but she okay. what a what a thing she left yeah that's an amazing legacy yeah it is a great legacy and there's and there's lots more like it that are growing mm. up and not just for um asylum seekers and refugees there's there's um there's lots of other examples for lots of different kinds of people well well thank you so much this has been so interesting great uh, you're a great interviewer and it's oh, lovely that's really kind. that was really good that's really good let me know what happens after. i really like how ecotherapy focuses on relationships with the body and the more than human world funnily enough since doing the podcast i have noticed the tension in my voice when i hold back my accent mary jane talked about having an inner dog and mine is a yorkshire terrier I had to cut a few things from this interview to keep it to an hour, but I'll be releasing these at a later date. I would love to know what you thought of the podcast. Get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or thejampactpod.com. And that is packed, spelt P-A-C-T. Thank you for listening. And here is a preview of the next episode with Sister Space. There is a mention of domestic violence in this clip, so feel free to skip it if that's a problem for you. So, um. 
Valerie Ford and her daughter, as you all know, um, were murdered by her ex-partner. And what had happened was she had gone and made a report to the police about um, the ex-partner threatening to ban her and her children in, in her home. And the police put it down as threat to property rather than threat to life. And he ended up carrying out, you know, that threat, killing both Valerie and um, their baby daughter. And the setup of Sister's Face came about when our CEO, Ingozi, um, went to the trial of Valerie's murder. And once um, it was all over and the perpetrator had been um, convicted, the realization of Black women not really having anywhere to go um, or finding, you know, any kind of support became very apparent to her. And she decided to set up sister space where black women would have their own space where they could um, be fully supported, especially when they've gone through um, domestic abuse.